Well, good morning, everyone. How you doing? Ready for the holiday? Okay, got big plans. Glad you're here. No one really, there weren't really many people in the 830 service. I think all the 830 people took off early this week. I'm glad you guys have made it. Uh, why don't you go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. Uh, I know we're receiving an offering, but I have confidence that you can turn in your Bibles and receive the offering at the same time. So go ahead and do that. Talented group of people that you are. If you don't have a Bible with you, you should find one that you can use down in one of the chair racks right around you. If you don't have a Bible yourself, then take one of those chair Bibles home with you. We want you to have one, okay? So if you're a guest this morning, just so you know what's going on, last Sunday we started a, a new series called Miracles in which we are examining some of the mysterious, out-of-the-ordinary, hard-to-comprehend things God has done in our world and in the lives of His people down through history. And uh, in an attempt to set a rational and biblical foundation for better recognizing and understanding them, we began last week with a theological overview of miracles. And if you missed that, then I, I really highly encourage you to go online and listen, or you can d- download it and listen at your leisure this week, because what we talked about last Sunday really sets the stage for everything that we're going to talk about over the next several weeks. Okay, so make sure you go on and listen to that overview. But just to do a really quick recap here, we noted last week that if you don't believe in God, then uh, for you there's really no such thing as miracles. Case closed, no need for discussion. However, if you do believe in God, you believe God exists, then it is only rational to believe that miracles are possible. Events can occur. God can do things that we can't fully explain. And he can do them when he wants, how he wants, where he wants, in the way that he wants. We also affirmed last week that as creator and sustainer of all things, God is powerfully active and at work in his world, uh, and therefore at work and active in our lives all the time. But in some specific instances and for specific reasons, he chooses to work in unusual, extraordinary, and unpredictable ways, or in what we consider to be miraculous ways. And then because our word miracle has been so overused in our culture and so watered down, we defined a miracle in a more specific biblical sense. And we said that a miracle is an astonishing event that occurs when the power of God transcends what is normally perceived as natural law and cannot be explained upon any known natural basis. It's a bush that burns without being consumed. It's the parting of a sea. Uh, it's the, st- the sun standing still. It's a virgin conceiving a child. It's a dead person coming back to life. In fact, it's that very thing that we have recorded here. Uh, We have it recorded here happening in Luke chapter 8. And so I want to read this account for you. Uh, And as I do, I want you to keep in mind that this report is given to us by by a guy named Luke uh, who wrote a biography of Jesus. He was a first century Greek physician educated in the tradition of Hippocrates, the famous uh, Greek doctor. He was a very intelligent, keen observer of human life and experience and would have gone to great lengths to accurately investigate and report this event and the details surrounding surrounding it. And so this is what Luke says happened, beginning in verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, he was on the west coast of Galilee, or the east coast of Galilee, he's returned to the west coast. When Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. And when they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. And then the woman, seeing she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. Presence of all the people, she she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. And then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. 
While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe and she'll be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he didn't let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Now, just so you know, these events unfolded as Jesus was reaching the peak of his popularity. And, and so there's this huge crowd waiting for him on the western shores of the Sea of Galilee because he had, he had gone across by boat to the, to the east side. He's just returned to the western shore. And there's all these people waiting for him. And there's this one guy in particular who's there whose name is Jairus. And we're told that he was a synagogue leader. Now, keep in mind that for the Israelites of the first century, the local synagogue or synagogues, they were the center of religious activity, of social activity. Uh, it's where people gathered for worship. It's where uh, scripture was read. It's where scripture was taught and studied. And apparently this guy Jairus was a religious official in the synagogues. And so he would have been involved in deciding, you know, who could read in synagogue, who could teach there and who couldn't. And because of that position, which was, which was a pretty important one, he would be, he would have been very well known by the community, uh, very respected, wealthy, uh, quite influential, uh, not really the kind of guy who would normally go around and have to beg for something. People came to him for help. In fact, as a synagogue leader, he, he was one of the professional religious guys in the area who openly criticized Jesus. You know, wasn't a particularly big fan of, of Jesus's teaching. It was too controversial. It was too radical. This whole idea of grace, are you kidding me? And so they all agree, agreed to have Jesus barred from speaking in the synagogues in the region of Galilee. And so that's what makes his behavior here somewhat unusual and unexpected. And Luke says that in front of all the people, in front of this giant crowd of people, this well-known leader suddenly falls down at Jesus' feet pleading for help. And he begs Jesus to come to his home because his 12-year-old daughter was dying. It's interesting, so often in life as human beings, we, we go about our daily activities essentially ignoring God, or maybe just questioning God, or challenging God, or criticizing God, even barring God from being part of our lives, much like Jairus treated Jesus. Until, of course, we're faced with a rather desperate situation. And then suddenly we run to God for help as if he's been our best friend ever all the time. And I I wonder if God ever feels wounded by that. You know, because for so many people, God's only good in times of trouble. And I wonder if God gets tired of that. You know, um, I would, but fortunately for us, I'm not God. Anyway, this guy, you know, he runs up to Jesus. He falls on his knees. He pleads for help. His 12-year-old child is dying, and we're told that it is his only daughter. And so I can only imagine, you know, the fear and the sense of desperation this guy was experiencing. I mean, any parent in this room will agree that, that if you suffer, if you personally suffer, that's a really hard thing to deal with. And if your, your, your spouse suffers, that's, that's very difficult as well. But if and when your child suffers, man, it, it is the deepest pain imaginable. And so here, here's this, this, this father who loved his daughter, his only daughter. And, you know, she represented for him the link to the future, you know, uh, future generations for him. He dreamed probably of her growing up and getting married and having grandchildren. And all that now is, is, is in serious jeopardy. You know, as a father myself of only one daughter, uh, 
for me, this story gr- jumps off the pages of Scripture and just grabs me by the throat. Because I'll admit, I dream, I have dream, I have dreams for my daughter Megan. Uh, I think of her, and I dream of her, you know, getting married someday and being a great mom and giving me some grandchildren, maybe a six-six tight end or middle hitter, something along those lines. I, I don't want to be too specific, but uh, I got my order place. That's sort of my dream. But I don't, I don't merely love that dream. I love her. I love her, and if she were dying, man, I would do whatever I could to save her. I would, I would do whatever. And so that's this Jairus guy's deal, man. He, yeah, he was a leader in the synagogue, and yeah, he voted to keep Jesus out. But as a father, man, he's desperate. And so he, he comes humbly asking for help. And how does Jesus respond to him? Did Jesus say, hey, look, no way, man. You, you, you're one of the guys who shut the doors of the synagogue on me. You kick me out. You ignore me. You trash talk me. You, you know, why should I help you? But Jesus doesn't do that. The text says Jesus didn't question her. He just started going along with the guy. And here's where things get interesting. They get delayed. Uh, And uh, as they're walking, they're making their way through this huge crowd. Luke says a sick woman quietly touches Jesus's cloak. Apparently, she had been suffering for 12 years. Uh, her problem is, is it's a difficult one, difficult one to discuss. Most scholars believe she suffered from chronic menstrual flow, uh, more than likely the result of some kind of uterine hemorrhage. But, but here's the deal. Uh, not only was she anemic, not only was she sick and weak from constant bleeding, but because of it, she was a social outcast. Because according to uh, Judaic law, a woman in her condition was not to be in contact with anybody. She wasn't allowed in the synagogue, uh, so she could not participate in religious activities. So, so she was terribly isolated, and this kind of isolation went on for 12 years as long as she was sick. She couldn't be with anyone. And in fact, in Mark's biography of Jesus, Mark says, you know, she suffered uh, under the care of a lot of doctors. She spent a lot of money on medical bills, and her condition only got worse. And so because she wasn't supposed to be in social contact with anybody, apparently her plan was to just disguise herself, mingle in the crowd, get as close as she could to touch Jesus and then book, you know, slip away. You know, like many people today, she tried everything humanly possible to solve her problem first. And when all else fails, she goes to God, but at least she goes and, and she go and she wants to go unnoticed. You know, she, she wants to experience the touch of God and then leave. And as far as she's concerned, no one really knows, needs to know about it except her and God alone. Well, plan works essentially, the touching part works, but she doesn't get away unnoticed. Jesus feels the touch and he says, hey, who touched me? And I, you know, it's funny, Peter says, Lord, there are people all over the place. Look around you. Who hasn't touched you? You know, there's a lot of people here. Jesus says, no, someone specific touched me. And what that tells me is that while there were a lot of peop- people reaching out for Jesus, that he knows the difference between serious faith and superficial curiosity. And so the woman hears what's said and she realizes she's not... She's not going to get away unnoticed. And so she falls trembling at Jesus's feet. And she explains what she did, why she did it, how she was instantly healed. And notice she does it, how? She does it in the presence of all these people. In other words, through her action and through her words, she gives a public you know, testimony, if you will, of her faith and of, her, of the power of God in her life. And as I see it, that's exactly the reason Jesus didn't let her slip away. You know, in, in God's economy, there, there, there is no such thing as private faith or private rescue or private salvation. Never has been. Even back in, in, in the days of Egypt for the Israelite people, uh, back in Egypt, uh, those who had faith in God's promise of deliverance were commanded to smear the blood of a sacrificed lamb on the doorposts, the top and sides of their homes. And then the angel of death would pass over. And they were to do that not because God had to see it, 
But it was meant to be a public testimony of, of the faith of those inside. So understand, with God, faith, rescue, salvation is a personal issue, but it's not a private matter. I don't know if you've ever had this experience when you're talking to someone in your family or friends or a circle of acquaintances, whatever. You talk to them, uh, and it's a person who considers him or herself a Christian, but when you ask them about their relationship with God, they say things like, well, you know, my faith is a very personal thing, and I'd rather really not talk about it. Do you ever have that experience? Well, let me tell you something. That doesn't really work with Jesus. Accepting him as savior, it it is a personal decision you have to make. That's true. But it's not meant to be kept a secret. In fact, Jesus expects that when a man, woman, student comes to faith and experiences the grace and mercy and love of God, that 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 experience is just going to overwhelm them and kind of bubble out and over and, and that we will publicly express what's happened. And that's why for his church, Jesus instituted the act of believers baptism. I mean, it's a, it's a visual way to publicly express personal faith, i.e. We, we are to share and we want to share what God has done in our lives through our actions and through our words. And we would do, we would all do well to, to keep this in mind because Jesus once said to another crowd of people, he said, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my father in heaven, but whoever disowns me, I will disown. Well, after this woman publicly bows down at his feet and gives testimony to her faith and healing, Jesus says, daughter, he says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Two quick things about this statement, then we need to move on. My first question is, why does Jesus call her daughter? And that's really easy to answer because Jesus had been going around teaching and explaining how to be part of his spiritual family requires faith alone. That's it doesn't require religious actions, religious works, religious rituals, religious ceremony, nothing like that. It just requires faith. And faith makes you part of the family. So he calls her daughter. Then he says to her, go in peace. And this, this wasn't just a nice way to say goodbye. It was actually an intentional, a departing blessing of peace. Because for so long, this woman had none, not with God, not with other people. She was a social outcast, banned from religious activity, religious life, totally isolated, totally disconnected. But because of her faith, Jesus now declares her to be a member of God's family and asserts that she was to be restored back into the community of God's people, the community of faith, and be recognized. She was blessed with peace, peace peace with God, peace with others. And as I thought about that, I realized that, you know, Jesus offers this blessing not not only for the woman's sake, but also for Jairus' sake as well, the synagogue leader. Because, I mean, he was a guy who he was a guy who banned people from religious services. Just as he banned Jesus, he banned this woman, the sick woman. So the message to him was simple. God has accepted this woman, and Jairus needed to accept her as well. And in the Old Testament, in Numbers chapter 6, we know that in the synagogue, only, only an official priest had the right to offer the closing blessing of peace, known as the blessing of Aaron. And Jairus knew that. And although they weren't in a synagogue, this religious leader would not have missed the significance of Jesus' statement. It was Jesus' way of affirming the woman's spiritual and social restoration. And it was also a way of aff- affirming his own priestly authority as the Messiah, as the Savior. But I'm thinking, I'm guessing at this point, Jairus had to be getting quite anxious because of the del- the. Del- delay you know yeah it was sad this woman was sick and but his daughter his daughter was dying and 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 so just as jesus finishes speaking and they're, they're about ready to head back on their way a messenger from jairus's household shows up and says i'm sorry to tell you but your daughter is dead don't don't bother the teacher anymore there's no need for him and jesus heard that and jesus said to jairus jairus look don't worry don't be afraid just believe and she'll be healed and considering what jairus just saw 
and what he just heard, I mean, perhaps it was possible that Jesus had the power and authority to even raise the dead. And so, so Jairus, he believes he has faith and he takes Jesus to his house and to his dead daughter. And Luke reports that when they arrived at the house, you know, people there were just devastated, family and friends, people were crying. It was a very uh, sad and tragic scene. In fact, there were people who were just wailing away. And it's important for you to know that in first century um, Jewish culture, uh, it was a custom uh, to for families to hire when you lost a loved one. They would hire professional mourners to come and to lead the funeral procession to the graveyard. And they would come and they would cry and they would wail and do all these things. And so those professionals were no doubt there just wailing away with their histrionics, getting ready for the funeral procession to start, but it hadn't started yet. So we know it couldn't have been much more than late afternoon because Jewish law stipulated a person had to be buried before sundown on the day of death. So Jesus gets there sometime in late afternoon. He tries to calm the crowd and he says to everybody, stop wailing. Now understand this this commandment was not directed to family and friends of this, this girl. I mean, Jesus would have been incredibly sensitive to them. I mean, he understood the pain they were experiencing. He had lost a friend before. There's nothing wrong with expressing genuine grief of the loss of someone that you love. But I'm convinced the command to stop wailing was specifically directed toward the scripted behavior of the professional mourners who were just going at it, you know, because they were there for the money. And you can't really blame them. They were just doing their job. They were doing what they were hired to do. They were going through their normal, you know, funeral theatrics, screaming and wailing and carrying on. And it's, it's not that Jesus was trying to be rude or anything, but he's just saying, hey, enough's enough. Now, if it were me, I would, have, I would have been like, hey, shut up already, you know, just be quiet. But Jesus simply says, stop the wailing. Stop the wailing. She's not dead, but asleep. And with that, some of the people, and again, I, I'm confident we're talking about the professional mourners here. I can't imagine family members just turning off the crying and start laughing. But some of these professionals, they, they stopped the whole deal and they started laughing. Uh, not laughter in the sense they were guffawing over, over a joke, but laughter in the sense of mocking Jesus for this comment, as if he could really do anything for this girl at this point. Uh, most of them probably already had already seen her young body laying motionless on their bed, her mouth opened, her eyes closed, the color drained from her. This wasn't the first time these people had seen a dead body. This was the job. This is what they did. And plus, given Jairus's wealth and status in the community, he would have had the best doctors in the region. Uh, uh, They're trying to help her. And the doctors would have known how and when to pronounce somebody dead. And so here's the question. If everyone there, including the professionals, recognized the girl was indeed dead, why would Jesus say she's just sleeping? Well, he could say it because Jesus was viewing all this from a divine perspective. You see, true death in scripture, true death, eternal death, is the separation of the human spirit from the presence of God, not merely the spirit being separated from the body. You see what I mean? So here, here's my here's my Ray K summary of what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, look, she's not dead dead. Her spirit has just left her body. I will bring her back. And so in consideration of and with great sensitivity to the family, you know, Jesus didn't want to make this some kind of a circus sideshow act. So he, he tells everybody to stay outside the house with the exception of, of Peter, James, and John, and Jairus and his wife, the parents of this girl. And he goes inside. He wastes no time. He immediately approaches the girl. And just as no Jewish person was supposed to, by law, touch a sick, bleeding woman, so no one was allowed to touch a dead body. But legally... 
it would only be a violation of the law if the sick remained sick and the dead remained dead. And so Jesus goes up to this girl's lifeless body, takes her hand, and he says, my child, get up. And Luke reports that immediately her spirit returned and at once she stood up. And let's face it, man, it's impossible to imagine what, what that girl's parents' reaction must have been like. I mean, you, you talk about freaking out. You talk about astonishment. You talk about excitement and gratitude, tears of sorrow turning to tears of joy. This mother and father had to have been absolutely beside themselves even paralyzed with joy that Jesus had actually done it. And therefore, he is who he claims to be, deity in the flesh, who has power even over death. Well, it's funny. Notice the first thing Jesus says to them after the ha- it happens. He says, he looks, he says, hey, give her something to eat. In other words, mom, cook her a hot dog. Your dad, order a pizza. Peter, Toast the bagel. Somebody do something. This kid is probably hungry. And to me, it's like, why on earth did food suddenly become such a big issue here? You know, why was this a concern in the situation? And for one, I think it goes without saying that being omniscient, Jesus knew how much and how often young adolescents eat. So that was one, well, that's one thing. It it seems to me that the command goes a little farther than that. I, I think the command to the parents to feed their daughter was a way of assuring them that this event was no cheap magic trick. It wasn't a a hallucination. This young girl, their only daughter, was fully restored back to physical life. Give her something to eat. And you know what? Only God has the power and authority to do that kind of restoration. And eventually Jesus himself would go on to prove that power once and for all when following his crucifixion and burial, he would be raised from the dead, physically from the dead, guaranteeing life everlasting to all who believe and changing the course of human history forever. But notice the second thing Jesus says to the girl's parents. Apparently he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. And it's fascinating to me that there are some people who suggest that this was, this was actually a command to keep the event a secret. In fact, in fact, that's the, that's the popular interpretation. But for me, that doesn't make any sense. Does that make any sense to you? I mean, how was that possible? How would that have been possible? Think about it. A crowd of people back in the city heard Jairus' story. They saw him come up and drop to his feet before Jesus and ask for help. They were there when the news came of, uh, of the girl's death. And they heard Jesus say, don't be afraid, just believe. And plus, there are a ton of people outside the house, friends, family, doctors, professional mourners, all waiting to see and hear what happened on the inside. What was Jairus and his wife going to do? Were they going to suppress their joy? Were they going to put on this big act? Were they going to go ahead and pay the the mourners and follow through on a fake funeral? Were they going to hide their daughter away for the rest of her life? Of course not. That's absurd. So what was Jesus commanding and why? And once again, it comes down to understanding first century culture, Jewish culture, because at the time in Jewish communities, when someone was claiming a miracle had occurred, especially especially any kind of healing miracle, it was supposed to be reported to the religious authorities, specifically to a priest for verification. But while laws regarding healings existed, technically there were no laws about the dead being brought back to life. No regulations for that, no ritualistic prescriptions for reporting that. And and Jairus himself, being a religious leader in the synagogue, would have known that there was no legal requirement or practical reason for the family to go to the priest. And so so a lot of people just overanalyze this command, but it's really unnecessary. Clearly, Jesus knew there was no way to keep this miracle a secret. He was simply saying to Jairus and his wife, this girl's mom, he was saying, look, you know, you don't, you don't need, you know, you don't need to hurry off and travel into town and report this. The priest doesn't need an official account of what's happened. Don't call a press conference. Uh, don't, uh, don't, don't, don't go on a book tour or anything like that. He says, do this for me. Just stay home and love and enjoy your daughter, your only daughter, because I've given her back to you. 
So inside the house, you know, the family, they're celebrating the grace and power of God outside the house. Well, we, we really don't know what was happening out there. But if I were to guess, I would say that Jesus, along with James and Peter and John, simply went out and announced the funeral has been canceled, which is something you really don't hear much, (laughs) right? That's kind of a new thing, but uh, I'm pretty sure that's what was said. Now, in case you didn't pick up on it, these two miracles in this one particular text have some fascinating parallels. I mean, parallels that obviously revolve around faith. Think about it. One one has a religious leader falling at Jesus' feet. The other has a poor social religious outcast falling at Jesus' feet. Both express personal faith publicly in front of all the people. Um, the girl was 12 years old. The woman had been sick for 12 years. Both miracles involve the touch of Jesus. Both happen instantaneously. Both involve the idea of family. Jesus calls the woman daughter. He calls the little girl my child. And so it's not hard to see how these two events connect in a whole lot of different ways. But Jesus never did a miracle without a divine purpose behind it. And when you begin to think carefully about these two, there's more to them than just Jesus establishing his divine power and authority as as important as that was, I believe there's something else here. I, there, there's another common element which links these two together. Do you know what it is? Each communicate the incredible grace of God and demonstrate Jesus's compassion for broken human human beings living in a, in, a, in a broken world. Just average everyday men, women, and children, people like you and me, the healthy and the sick, the religious and the irreligious, the rich and the poor, the popular and the marginalized. These miracles are meant to reveal that in the midst of the struggles of everyday life, even in the face of painful, terrifying situations that are beyond our control, Jesus is able to restore hope. In the midst of what is sometimes a dark and just crazy world, he's able to overcome evil and teach us about what is true and and, and spiritual reality and extend to us grace. Through faith in him, Jesus is able to restore us socially, you know, bringing us peace with God and and, and peace with, with one another, connecting us to a believing community, the family of God. And then finally, Jesus is able to provide for our physical restoration, not just temporarily, mind you, but forever. And eventually, Jairus, his daughter, this woman in the story, they all died. And I remember another time when Jesus raised his dead friend Lazarus. He said to all the people who were there and witnessed that miracle, he said to them, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Not really. Do you believe this? And you know, ultimately, that's the question of the day. And it's a question that only you can answer for yourself. Let's pray. Our Father, we acknowledge this morning that um, you are God and we are not, and that you have the right and the, the privilege to do whatever you want, when you want, how you want, the way you want, to whomever you want. And um, it is only rational to believe and accept that miracles are indeed possible, and that they've happened throughout history, and that they continue to happen, not as everyday events, because our world is governed by natural law that, that keeps things in order. But this is your world, and in certain instances, at certain times and places, you choose to do the out of the ordinary thing. And I pray, Lord, that as we think about that, we would recognize that not only do you do the miraculous at times, but you are at work in our lives every single day, always loving, always gracious, always merciful, always protecting and guiding and restoring. Uh, You're faithful to us no matter what and good times and bad. And so this morning, may we recognize that as being true and worship you because of it. In Jesus' name, amen.